five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today on the Space Economy Podcast, we have the final episode of our annual winter series. So far, our winter series, focused on NASA's return to the moon with the Artemis program, has discussed the NASA Viper robotic precursor mission to the moon's south pole, the Lunar Gateway's first habitable element, the Habitation and Logistics Outpost, originally known as HALO, but which has been combined with Maxar's power and propulsion element to create what is now being called the Co-Manifest flight. And in our last episode, a look back to help us with the way forward, where we heard about increasing science operations engineering synergism in the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program perspectives for the Artemis program. Today, we're going to look forward in time we're going to learn about one company's ideas of using lunar materials for manufacturing. The ideas presented here are going to take some time to develop. Hence, why this episode is a look forward to when the Artemis program has progressed much further than what we've discussed so far. The presenters are Ron Paladin and Alex Ignatiev from Lunar Resources, a startup formed three years ago. The presentation is titled Lunar Surface Manufacturing. You can download the presentation from our website. Before we start the presentation, though, here's a message from our sponsor, Circo Canada. We'd like to thank Circo and our other sponsors, as well as our loyal Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. With 40 years' experience in the space sector, Circo offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Circo enjoys with the European Space Agency, Circo contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Circo offers a wide range of space and ground support, from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Circo's space capabilities, visit circo.com backslash na backslash Canada. Okay, now let's listen in. To the presentation. Thank you, Dan. This is Alex Ignatio, and, and <clears throat> Ron and I would like to thank you and Harley and Dallas and Rich for inviting us uh, to this presentation. Um, I am on slide one. It's an introductory slide uh, on our efforts on lunar space manufacturing. So uh, let me talk about Lunar Resources Incorporated. Our objective is to industrialize space through space resource utilization. Uh, we're a three-year-old company recently formed. Uh, our in interest is to advance and commercialize space manufacturing resources processing technologies. We have two core technologies that we were, were built on, uh, in-space vacuum deposition and molten regolith electrolysis. Uh, and our current missions included uh, the following funded programs. Atoms, which is a program with the Air Force to do thin film reflective coatings in space. Uh, Osmos is to coat optical fibers that are made in space. In silico, it is uh, infrared reflecting coatings. Uh, in well, is the stabilization and rigidization and joining of elements in space. Uh, magma is, uh, res is resource extraction through electrolysis. Satellite surfacing missions are self-explanatory. 
and Repulsor is focused energy system for refractory metal 3D printing. So we have a fair number of things on our plate currently. Um, and in terms of our space R&D heritage, we have the Wakefield Facility Program and the Multi-Oxide Electrolysis Program, which kind of brought us to forming lunar resources. So on page three, I refer to uh, the Wakefield Facility Program. This was a program where I was the principal investigator and program director. Uh, at the University of Houston, we designed, we fabricated, deployed, and we operated a free-flying platform for materials fabrication in, in the vacuum of space. Um, everyone looked at, up until that point in time, and this is, a, we had three shuttle flights. Everyone looked at, at vacuum as a detriment to operating in space. We turned it around and looked at it as a benefit, and that benefit was to fabricate uh, high-purity uh, materials in that vacuum environment. And we focused on semiconductors, and specifically gallium arsenide family of semiconductors, because those materials at that point in time uh, had significant yield problems terrestrially. Uh, they weren't getting the performance or quality that was required, and so we, were, we went out to prove that, in fact, if you uh, and looked uh, utilized unique vacuum environments, you can generate high-quality materials. And we did, in fact, fabricate the high-quality gallium arsenide semiconductors uh, at that point in time. Uh, we also worked on some oxide materials in space, uh, realized that atomic oxygen is present in low Earth orbit. We utilized that atomic oxygen, in fact, for uh, growth some uh, aluminum oxides that were very high quality and very high purity. So the Wakefield program uh, not only showed that we can make materials in space, it showed that we can generate high vacuum, ultra high vacuum. We measured 10 to the minus 13 tor behind in the wake environment of the Wakefield. That's 10,000 times better than the operational vacuum in, in the best vacuum chambers terrestrially. And so we uh, did raise the TRL to eight for this with, with these flight programs. And, and we then turned, I mean, we're the first and only folks that demonstrated that you can do vacuum deposition in space and you can generate thin film materials and devices. Um, the, the, this, this three shuttle flight demo really led us to a significant interest, industry interest in, in this thin film production in the vacuum of space. A major company asked us to work with them to be able to fabricate for them these uh, high-quality materials. This is the semiconductor people. And uh, we were on track to do that. Uh, we had designed up an 800-wafer carousel to produce uh, 1,000 wafers essentially a month on orbit. However, uh, with the, uh, the Columbia accident, uh, access to space was gone. Uh, and industry requires access to raw materials to make products, and so that uh, that whole agreement and pro program failed for us at that point in time, uh, and uh, we had uh, looked at other laboratory uh, experiences to continue our program. Uh, suffice it to say, though, that our, uh, our, you know, demonstrated work of utilizing the vacuum of space uh, infused the concept of quality of vacuum, much more so in the semiconductor industry. And uh, as a result, that industry overcame a number of its problems for generating ultra-high quality materials, and now we have gallium arsenide electronics uh, in all of our cell phones, et cetera, uh, of high quality, because they really looked at, at improving uh, their processing problems. Uh, the Wakefield program also led to a number of other R&D programs, because I mentioned 
we looked at oxide growth in space and that allowed us to understand more about how to how to fabricate uh, high-performing crystalline oxides. And we did uh, thinitrone solid oxide fuel cells and random access memory uh, capacitors and, in fact, thinitrone superconductors. So there's a fair amount of heritage that was built up from the Wakefield program in terms of uh, industrial interest and commercialization. <clears throat> the slide four, then, is the heritage for the molten oxide electrolysis. Uh, this was uh, Don Sadaway at MIT and his work uh, with NASA and others over a number of years. Don is a principal in Lunar Resources, uh, part of our team, uh, and the focus here is electrolysis of molten regolith. Um, Don processed in his laboratory regolith simulant uh, in a high-temperature reactor. He extracted oxygen to anode, proved that it could be done. He extracted metallic regolith uh, uh, at the cathode, and so he truly demonstrated that electrochemistry uh, applied to molten oxides and specific reg specifically regolith uh, could generate oxygen and metals. Um, that was sort of groundbreaking work and, and actually it enabled commercialization of the concept uh, for the production of steel on Earth. A commercial company was formed that Don was involved with. It's called Boston Metal and now they are producing uh, a non-coke production of iron and steel uh, reducing significantly environmental contaminants and uh, uh, really commercializing that concept with a significant amount of, uh, of investment from the investment community. So I've identified the company's space heritage, both in terms of, uh, of materials processing uh, uh, as well as in terms of vacuum deposition. So let's then go and talk about the moon. Slide number five is our, our interest in and lunar surface manufacturing. That's a pretty slide. Number six, uh, what do we want to do? We want to turn the lunar, lunar soil, the lunar regolith, into products. Uh, we need to refine and extract uh, products. To, uh, we need to refine and extract raw materials from that lunar soil, uh, produce then the raw materials that we're interested in for our manufacturing, and then manufacture final products. <laughs> slide seven. Um, the regolith, as we're aware, is a, a powdery mixture of metallic oxides of the order of 100 microns in size, uh, moderately homogeneous. Uh, there are some differences in terms of Marian Highland regolith. The, the table at the right-hand side of slide number seven indicates that uh, uh, there's more aluminum in, in Highland regolith and, and more calcium than in Marian. But notice we have, of course, a high percent of oxygen because these are all oxides. Uh, we have a fair amount of silicon, aluminum, iron, magnesium, calcium, and then uh, smaller amounts of other metals, including sodium, cal uh, sodium and potassium and chromium and manganese, etc. The regolith is a, a few meters to tens of meters in depth. It's over the whole moon. Um, and our challenge then, uh, in terms of doing manufacturing on the moon with raw materials, is to break that regolith oxygen bond, the strong bonds to form the oxide and obtain the raw elements, the core elements uh, from that regolith under the processing program. Slide eight. And our approach then is to do molten regolith electrolysis. So we're extending, and uh, uh, Don is extending his own work, Don Sadaway is his own work in terms of electrolysis and moving into high temperature electrolysis at around 2000 degrees centigrade. Uh, of course, you'll extract oxygen as an anode and in fact, uh, for our manufacturing process, we don't necessarily need oxygen, but we can sell it to others who do. 
I will have a significant amount of oxygen coming off, and as a result of the commercialization concept, we'll be able to, uh, to uh, sell that on the, on the oxygen market on the moon, so to speak. Uh, we'll, of course, extract the, as a cathode the metals that we have principal interest in. Um, this is a direct refining of molten regolith, and all we need is electrical current and, of course, a voltage to generate that current. Uh, there are no reagents required uh, to be before this process. We don't need uh, carbon. We don't need hydrogen. There's other processes for extracting raw materials from the moon do need. We simply need electric current uh, and a an, an voltage to extract and refine that regolith. I'll, I'll give you an indication of how we can uh, use a uh, we can generate that, that required electrical uh, energy to be able to do this. <laughs> Next slide, slide nine. So uh, the focus of lunar resources now is, is to do industrial scale production in the moon. We want to extract the oxygen, as I mentioned, uh, extract metallurgical grade metals, and semiconductor grade silicon. And we've shown that we can do semiconductor grade silicon by electrolysis at two-step electrolysis process. Um, notice on the table on the right the major elements that we're focusing on, of course, oxygen, uh, silicon, iron, chromium, aluminum, titanium, magnesium, all these are exciting and interesting um, metals that are used terrestrially. Uh, we will use them on the moon and, in fact, in ways that, that aren't being used terrestrially. Uh, in our preliminary lunar resources design of a reactor, uh, nominally it's about cubic meter in size, a meter by meter by meter. Um, and if you're running at about 1,500 amps of current through this reactor at a, at a few, uh, a couple, two, three volts, uh, we can process 64 tons, approximately 64 tons of regolith per year, and extract from that regolith about almost four tons of oxygen, uh, 13 tons of iron, and over three tons of silicon, as an example. Uh, so these are significant amounts of material that are not going to be available for applications. What do we do with this once we extract it? Uh, and that is the applications concept uh, at Lunar Resources, how we're going to apply these materials on a lunar surface for products. Next slide, slide 10, is in fact an, a description of uh, how we're gonna utilize these extracted materials in the metal, and the metals specifically. Uh, on the moon, uh, we have the MAGMA program, uh, we have the FARVIEW program, and the one megawatt program, and I'll discuss each of those, and Ron and I will discuss each of those uh, in, in, in sequence here. Slide 11. Uh, and uh, I can slow down if you have questions, but nonetheless, I'll keep going. Uh, in terms of the metals that we extract by molten regolith electrolysis, um, there are a, a, a group of those that we're interested in. Number one, iron. We have a, make a fair amount of iron, 12 tons or so, uh, for our, our uh, prototype reactor. Um, and this is molten uh, iron that comes out, so we process that. We can process that into rebar. Or, or son of rebar. Essentially, uh, you want to strengthen lunar concrete. You want to have some support structure on the moon for other uh, construction applications. Uh, we can make I-beams, again, for structure on the moon. I uh, make conduit pipes for fluid transport. Uh, all that can be done with the molten iron that comes out. Uh, and notice, since, it's, since there's no environment on the moon, the iron doesn't get oxidized. You have to worry about any oxidation problems or contamination. So, uh, for aluminum, uh, structural, of course, uh, we can make framework uh, 
uh, aluminum beams that are, can be used to support inflat uh, inflatables or the deployables. Um, again, conduit piping for fluid transport uh, and, and electrical transmission. Uh, aluminum is a good conductor of electricity. Uh, and for transmission lines, et cetera, aluminum will do uh, just, just fine. Um, magnesium and calcium are also present in significant amounts, and uh, the application on the moon is very different than it would be terrestrially. We can use those, their conductive properties. They're highly conductive metals. Uh, they're very close to that of, conductively close to that of aluminum. And so we can use them for electrical transmission lines on the moon. There's no atmosphere to oxidize them. That's why there's a problem to utilize them terrestrially. Um, and therefore, we can utilize those significantly on the moon for electrical transport and transmission, as well as some, for, as an example, magnesium for some structural support. So the, our MAGMA program uh, generates really structural materials uh, for application uh, on the moon. Slide 12. Um, we can also use those extracted metals uh, that we done that we do by molten regular electrolysis uh, for thin film manufacturing fabrication. Uh, I noted that the moon is a vacuum. In fact, the moon is a uh, an ultra high vacuum, ten to the minus four uh, vacuum level uh, during the daytime. Uh, that's uh, as good as our ultra high vacuum chambers terrestrially. Uh, and as a result, we can apply vacuum deposition concepts on the moon uh, because there's no chamber required, no vacuum chamber. Uh, the whole moon is a vacuum. We can utilize that, that, that concept. And in terms of vacuum deposition, on the left-hand side, uh, we have a depositor, something that will generate a flux of atoms or molecules. These atoms or molecules alight onto a substrate, and they form a thin or a thick film, depending on how long a depositor is turned on. And that thin or thick film then has certain properties that we are interested in. And our approach is to fabricate thin film functional materials, materials that have some function uh, in the environment that we're that we're, we're putting them in. As an example, uh, as examples I mentioned earlier, aluminum. We can make wires out of aluminum, thin film and thick film wires. Uh, no need to draw them out. Uh, we can make we can deposit them directly in in unique in unique places. We can make contacts, electrical contacts. We can make electrodes. As an example, you see I'm not focusing on on electronic type of applications. A silicon clearly, uh, our initial step is to apply it to solar cells. It can be applied to transistors and microelectronics. Also, realize that unique vacuum environment of the moon can allow some very, some very clean room environments for microelectronic processing, at least in some relatively non-complex initial ways to do things like diodes and simple transistors. And we looked at the possibility of doing that. Um, magnesium. Uh, wires and also batteries, and I'll discuss that those concepts a bit later. Uh, calcium I mentioned for wires. Sodium also as a battery component is part of an electrolyte scenario. Uh, so um, um, this our magma program now generates thin film and structural materials for lunar resources application programs. And our next application program is the Farview program, and I'll have Ron follow that discuss that starting with slide 13. Ron, go ahead. Okay, thank you, Alex. Uh, well, I'm on slide 13, the Farview concept. Uh, Farview is a uh, low-frequency uh, uh, radio telescope uh, that we've just submitted to the NIAC call earlier, out, earlier this year. 
Uh, specifically, it is a sparse array. Uh, for those of you familiar with LOFAR, it's like a LOFAR system uh, that operates between 5 and 40 megahertz. So uh, it's on the lunar far side. It's on the lunar far side because the Earth uh, generates a lot of natural and anthropogenic low-frequency RF signals. Uh, so the only place in the inner solar system that's quiet enough to do scientific uh, observations in this band uh, is on the lunar far side. So the image uh, on the chart shows one of the possible uh, uh, configuration, array configurations that we're looking at. We're also looking at linear arrays and other sorts of things. But uh, this is NIAC, so it's an early stage concept. Um, there's no equivalent observatory uh, uh, like Farview. Uh, our science is actually based on a astrophysics probe study, the far side study, that was led by Jack Burns from the University of Colorado, and he is part of our Farview team. Uh, the big difference here is scale. Uh, we are a thousand times more sensitive uh, and uh, twice the resolution. So we occupy a 20 by 20 kilometer uh, area on the moon, and uh, we will uh, have 100,000 10 meter dipoles. So this is a fairly large and massive observatory. Needless to say, if we had to transport all this material um, from the Earth to the moon to build this, it would be uh, cost prohibitive. And so our plan is to build as much of this as possible in situ uh, and to use um, the thin film processes that Alex has been discussing uh, and the lunar regolith to extract all of our material. And this is all of the system elements. So it includes uh, the radio array, uh, the antennas, the wires, the electronics, and as Alex said, the power generation and energy storage systems uh, that we would uh, use to support the observatory, both uh, during daytime and nighttime. Um, in the next section, Alex will talk about the uh, solar arrays and the battery. Um, and so I'll spend more time just talking about the observatory itself. Um, our estimates are that it will take us approximately two years, uh, a little bit longer than that, maybe two and a half years, to generate uh, the 100,000 dipoles and get the uh, observatory uh, fully operational. So going to chart 14, uh, so how are we going to do this? And we have uh, a concept of uh, an ISRU factory, uh, and this factory consists of a uh, regolith processing facility. This is a, a system that does the, uh, the extraction of the minerals and uh, materials out of the lunar regolith. Uh, those are then deposited in a deposition rover, which is shown on the chart. Uh, and this is the device that actually lays down the antenna. It melts uh, the regular surface into a glass. It then lays the metal antenna on that with connecting wires and all the other necessary uh, infrastructure. Uh, and uh, the, uh, in addition to these two facilities, we will also land a processing unit for the RF signal. So once the uh, uh, telescope is all the dipoles are fully connected, we have a RF processing unit that will uh, massage the signal and do all the appropriate things before sending the data back to Earth for analysis. And so, not surprisingly, uh, the length of time it takes to manufacture a fully pop populated far view 
uh, is strongly dependent on the number of these ISRE factories that we can land. Uh, so our limiting factor is um, getting the mass of these things down to the point where we could land multiples. Uh, our uh, NIAC concept had four uh, factories landing, uh, each of them then uh, building one-fourth of the array. And so uh, with that, we came in with uh, uh, something like you know, 26 months uh, to uh, build uh, the full up Farview telescope uh, from the point of landing. Uh, this same ISRE factory also builds the solar arrays and the batteries. So the process is during the, you know, once we land, the first lunar day, uh, we will be uh, exclusively generating the power infrastructure. This will give us the power we need to survive lunar night. Uh, it will also then allow us, starting with the second day, uh, to start building dipoles. And the process is that during the day, uh, during the lunar days, we build the antennas. Uh, we uh, uh, start uh, each little area starts uh, generating its its uh, uh, dipoles. Uh, when night falls, uh, we start doing testing with the RF system uh, to make sure all the antennas are working. Uh, other than that, we just hibernate. So we uh, do a little bit of testing and then rest and, and wait for the next uh, lunar dawn. And at that point, then we continue to do this. And so um, science observations can actually start after a few lunar days. Uh, we'll have enough antennas out there to start being able to actually do uh, interesting measurements. Uh, but it really will be at the end of the, of the two years uh, that we have this uh, amazingly capable observatory. Because the observatory is built in situ and uh, all of the components uh, have relatively long lifetimes, uh, this observatory is serviceable, repairable, uh, and evolvable. So if there are things that break or if there are things that we discover once we land there, this is sufficiently adaptable that we could uh, adjust the observatory and ensure that it has an extremely long uh, scientific lifetime. Uh, in addition to doing uh, dark ages uh, science, and here, because of the higher resolution, the greater sensitivity, we actually, uh, for the first time, will be able to do um, uh, spectral and um, spatial power spectra and do much more than just test uh, the uh, cosmological theories. We'll actually be able to really start understanding what's been going on at that point. So this is a very capable observatory. In addition, uh, that we'll be able to do some uh, exoplanet measurements of magnetic fields around exoplanets and such. Uh, we also will be able to do lunar um, soundings. Um, we uh, can probably get down a couple kilometers with this so that we'll understand what the, at least the area beneath the observatory is uh, like un uh, under the surface of the moon. And we'll be able to do solar RF measurements. And so during the day when the sun is up, it's too much noise to do all uh, the dark ages science, so we'll do solar science and lunar science during the day and cosmology at night, uh, cosmology and exoplanets. Um, moving on to chart 15, um, ATLAS is a concept that we have that we're planning on submitting to the PRISM call that's currently uh, been released by NASA. And so this is um, a, an integrated uh, mission where we do Lunar science, solar science, and we do a proof of concept of building the antenna. 
So the goal here is we would land um, a small, very small rover. We would um, populate that rover with uh, an electron spectrometer, uh, uh, a mass spectrometer, an electrometer, uh, and possibly one other instrument. We're looking at some other stuff now. Um, and then we would uh, do the in-situ science measurements. Uh, we would then build the antenna, a single uh, dipole uh, that uh, would uh, do proof of concept of the process. And also there's, there are questions about how the antenna will function on the, directly on the lunar surface. So remember, we are literally on the regolith. We are not insulated in any way. And so there are some unknowns about how that's going to process. So the goal here is a proof of concept to get real data. Um, and right now we're looking at landing at Schrodinger, because uh, that's one of the two options. It's on the far side. So that we would like to be on the far side to do a, a better test of the low frequency, since the Earth generates a bit too much noise for us. Um, but, um, hey, Ron. Uh, Ron? Yeah. This is Mark yeah. O'clock in the Northrop. How are you? Uh, do you need a uh, sub-reflector? How do you erect that? I, I'm getting how you do no, the main. No, we don't need a sub-reflector. So this, this actually, we connect it to an RF spectrometer. Uh, all of this is done in situ, and we get our uh, signal from that. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, excuse me, Ron. This is this is Dan. Um, you know, it's a very clever idea, um, melting regolith and and coating the melted regolith and using that as a dipole material. Basically, what you're doing is you're laying down metal foil or thin film, and but metal foil metal foil is very very lightweight stuff. I mean, that's really easy to bring from the earth. I could I could haul up acres. Of metal foil, so why, why is what, what is I'm trying to understand what the value of doing this is rather than bringing my bringing my foil up from the earth. Uh, I mean, the key is, thing is, let me okay, go, go ahead, Alex. Go ahead, Alex. Let me add a couple of compliments, a couple, a couple of points. Uh, yeah, it's it's metal foil of a certain thickness. You've got to have it thick enough to be able to for the um, extinction. Uh, length for the for, for the wavelength we're looking at, so that's moderately thick foil. However, in terms of the amount of material we're putting down in a 10 a 20 kilometer square area, uh, we did the calculations. I'm trying to recall right now. It was um, multiple tens of tons of of just the material itself, and none of the deployment mechanisms for that. Uh, and you still have to prepare the, the lunar surface. Realize. Uh, the foil is, is not so easy to put down if it's very thin because of the fact that you're going to put it under tension, you can rip it, you can de deform it in, in ways, whereas in this case, uh, we can put down specifically a certain thickness of aluminum wherever we need it and how we need it and not be concerned with it being, with it being damaged. It's sitting on a, a glass substrate, a relatively thick glass substrate, one that has strength, uh, as strength of the system. So, uh, this is, uh, by far a factor, I think we did a factor of eight or ten less mass doing it this way than taking things with you. That's a quick question. Yeah, yeah. Related to this discussion, have you looked at dust and micrometeorite impacts? Right, and, and that's great. We have, and it's not relevant. Um, I, I, I say that too, too crudely, sorry. Uh, dust, is, dust is not going to, we don't believe it's going to significantly affect any of the signal from the, from the antennas. Micrometeorite impact uh, 
you know, that could be, we're, we're talking about an antenna that may be 10 centimeters wide, as an example. A micrometeorite impact would be some small portion, portion of that antenna, and thus reduce conductivity minimally. If there's a large impact, the answer is we can go back with our, our rover and replace that area, reconnect it, and continue. Okay, thanks, Steve. You looked at Chandrayaan blast, and I guess, in terms of meteorite impact. I'm sorry, have we looked right. at what? I think you, you look at shattering your glass substrate from the... Oh, no, have not. That's fully possible. And as I say, if that happens, uh, we'll just replace that region, remelt the, remelt the glass and replace it. I mean, the tool is there. And this is kind of a self-repairing system. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, I think the key thing to remember with this is that, that um, all of these things are... Uh, Manufacturing devices are active. So if we do indeed find that, um, you know, during some event, uh, we lost a couple of, of antennas, we can go back and uh, rebuild them. And understand this is also a hundred thousand dipoles. So the signal degradation will be fairly small, uh, even if we lose the whole string. Uh, but then it's lost only for a short period of time. We go back and, and rebuild it. And so, uh, this should be, uh, very graceful degradation and very resilient to all of the things that are likely to impact us. Um, the one thing that we couldn't do, obviously, is a massive impact, but that's probably pretty rare. And so the normal micrometeoroids and other uh, thermal cycling and things that will certainly affect this, uh, we will, one, be able to repair them, and two, if we learn that we're a little too thin, then we can build it a little thicker next time. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff uh, that we have uh, available to us that we would not have if we brought this stuff from Europe. Uh, and so that's one of the big factors is on um, this is, you know, even thin film. This is a 20 by 20 kilometer area. That's still going to be a lot of mass. Uh, and so this gives us this opportunity to utilize lunar resources uh, and to be able to repair and fix this stuff so that uh, as it does uh, decay over time. Uh, it's rebuildable um, and therefore will give us a nice long life, something we can't do if we brought all the stuff from the Earth. All right, I guess with that, I will um, – oh, the other aspect of this is that there is one thing that, that is unknown right now. There is some discussion about how the RF signal will interact with uh, being directly on the lunar surface. Uh, we've done things above the lunar surface, but nobody has actually done it in the lunar surface. And so part of the ATLAS mission will be to get real data on uh, antenna performance uh, in the regolith to see if there are any other issues that uh, we simply were unaware of before we commit to building uh, a much larger facility. So it is um, doing lunar science, doing solar science, but it's also this pathfinder for uh, building things directly on the lunar surface. And with that, I will move to chart 16 and turn it back to Alex. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ron. Um, let's see. And my phone has. Um, okay. Uh, sorry. So uh, on chart 16, uh, we then move to the next program that Lunar Resources has. And this is a one megawatt program. And Ron referred uh, to that. Uh, in this case, we are fabricating thin film silicon solar cells on the moon uh, and realize that the, 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 the approach that Ron discussed in terms of making the antenna on the moon 
um, in terms of melting the regolith, the regolith into glass and depositing the aluminum uh, strip line on that is essentially the first two steps of making the thin film silicon a solar cell. Uh, we need a substrate. Uh, glass is a great substrate. We've done that. We have melted regolith into a glass. Onto that glass, we've deposited aluminum as the bottom electrode. On top of the aluminum, you do a P and N silicon um, a junction, and you do an aluminum uh, contact on the top through a, through a contact mask. So the concept of building the solar cell, a microcrystalline syndrome solar cell, is well defined and, and uh, done in a laboratory. Um, so on the moon, uh, we would utilize the rover that Ron referred to. Uh, and uh, utilize the silicon, the aluminum raw materials that, that we extracted by metal oxide or metal regolith electrolysis. And uh, we would then deposit that silicon solar cell on melted regolith glass. Uh, and to do the melting of the glass and the evaporation, deposition of the silicon, the aluminum, et cetera, we would use concentrated solar uh, for that. Uh, concentrated solar with light pipes can be up to 85. 90% efficient, so we're not losing a lot of energy as you would with, let's say, solar cells uh, to, to generate the electricity to do the, the uh, melting. So uh, this is a direct uh, solar radiation of either the, the regolith and or uh, our, our uh, deposition material to be able to make this thin film silicon solar cell. Uh, the solar cells are interconnected with, with passing di bypass diodes. We make those diodes directly in the same process, your silicon diodes. Uh, we lay down thin film wires and bus bars parallel to the solar cells themselves, uh, and we continuously lay out solar cells on the surface. Now, I mentioned these are microcrystalline solar cells. The reason is that we're growing this silicon uh, thin film materials on a polycrystalline substrate. These are not single crystal silicon solar cells. Single crystal cells in silicon have efficiencies of 18 and 20% some even a bit higher. Uh, we're focusing on moderate efficiencies of 8 to 10%. In fact, uh, the highest efficiency of the champion samples now are the gallium arsenide, a three-junction, four-junction cells that run, say, 47% in the laboratory. Uh, those are perfectly crystalline, epitaxial. The kind of things that we did on a weight shield, uh, those kind of materials would be utilized to make those kind of solar cells. But you need a single crystal substrate to do that. In our case, we're having the lunar glass as a substrate, and that's where the 10%, 5, 8 to 10% efficiency comes from. Now, even with that efficiency, actually at 5% efficiency, our preliminary design for the deposition rover will generate a 450 kilowatt capacity in one year. Uh, and that's uh, operating during the day, and I think it's a total 35% uptime that we assumed for that kind of operation. So it's a significant amount of of uh, solar cell capacity that a uh, single rover can make, and of course it's being fed by the the, the regular processor itself. Uh, going to slide 17, so in terms of the one megawatt concept, the concept is say to deploy multiple rovers, as Ron has, had mentioned uh, for our lunar um, uh, uh, RF antenna scenario, and multiple processors to support that. Um, the, of course, the processors feed the rovers. Uh, continuously lay out solar cells, uh, interconnect them, as I said. And we could, as an example, uh, fabricate solar cells on both sides of the lunar limb so that we can have uh, uninterrupted power generation uh, on the moon. Uh, of course, localized to one section of the 
it that way. Uh, and the one megawatt in situ power generation, a concept we can have up and running by 2030. Uh, we can increase that one megawatt production by two to five megawatts per year, depending on how many rovers, uh, how many deposit deposition rovers are, are there. Uh, the one megawatt is quite direct, to put it simply with one rover and one um, the lunar processor, regular processor. So we're generating here an energy-rich environment for the moon. And, you know, why is that important? It's for life support, for transportation, for manufacturing, for science, for technology development, and commercialization. Now, as Ron mentioned before, uh, there's a 14 days of sunlight, 14 days of night on the moon. Uh, initially, it is a challenge because you have to stay alive uh, during the nighttime. So our approach in terms of the one megawatt program and in general, uh, the, the generation of energy on the, on the moon from solar cells is on next slide 18, is to do a um, energy storage concept on the moon. And again, this is utilizing lunar resources. Uh, we have a, a process for fabricating a thick film battery on the moon using the resources that we extract. And this thick film battery would be a, a reactive metal that's an anode, uh, magnesium or aluminum, uh, sulfur and metal matrix is a cathode, and there is a small amount of sulfur in lunar regolith. We're going to be processing a lot of it for the antenna and or for solar cells, and we'll have that available. Um, uh, metal hydride electro, uh, uh, electrolyte, uh, and we're going to confine all this into a divot in the lunar regolith. Uh, so that's going to give us insulation, thermal and electrical insulation for allow us to do uh, to do this battery directly on the surface of the moon. In terms of the electrolyte, we've got sodium present. We can do a, um, a and, and chlorine and fluorine. We can do a metal halide partial electrolyte. We'd have to add to that uh, something like cyanol fluoride uh, to be able to have this more liquid like in 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 in, uh, in, in, in phase. Um, that's about fifteen to twenty percent of the mass of the battery. So even though uh, we're making the vast majority of the battery in the moon. Some has to be brought from the Earth in terms of the storage concept, but only a small amount compared to a typical battery. Uh, and our projected output is, uh, is about 35 amp hours per liter uh, at minus 100 degrees centigrade. Um, and this is, a, this is lower than lead-acid batteries as an example, but lead-acid batteries don't work at minus 100. In fact, most all batteries don't work at minus 100 degrees C. And so this is going to be a very interesting and intriguing uh, way to, uh, to do uh, in situ energy storage on the moon. We generate the energy there. We store the energy there. It can be utilized in a number of areas. So that being said, let me then go to a concluding slide, number 19, where Lunar Resources Incorporated is focused on the production of basic materials and devices on the moon. We extract materials. Those materials can be used for, for structural materials, where we manufacture rebar or, and support uh, structures, metal conduit, structural trusses, uh, and things in the structural area. There also could be functional materials where we fabricate solar cells and dipoles and, dipoles and, and, and uh, small transistors, or we can do conductive thin-film wires and transmission lines, like the antenna wires that we're focusing on, where we can also do absorptive emissive reflective coatings, uh, coatings for, uh, for science applications, uh, as well as for life support. Um, so this is a very ambitious program that Lunar Resources has. This is a program for commercializing 
resource processing on the moon, commercializing materials manufacturing on the moon, and moving forward to be able to utilize that lunar environment for a variety of things. Let me go to the last slide, slide number 20. I want to say, both Ron and I want to thank you for uh, your uh, attention. Uh, I want to point to a recent uh, op-ed uh, in Space News that Elliot Farrell, our CEO, has, uh, has uh, uh, done, and there's a link there to that uh, on your screens. Uh, for additional information, I point to Elliot Carroll as our CEO. He's a non-technical point of contract. A contact is always available. Um, myself as technical point of contact, and uh, Ron Pullivan as our science manager and the science point of contact. So again, we thank you for the opportunity to present. And if there are any other questions left, we'll be willing to stand on line and answer. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ron and, Al and Alex. This is uh, this is pretty nifty stuff, and uh, it's it's the kind of thing we actually haven't heard very much about before. We got plenty of time for questions, so and actually we've got a lot of people on the line, so hopefully we we have lots of questions. Let me let me start out with one. Um, with regard to we were talking about eventual power production and storage, that is, you would fabricate the uh, the solar panels and, and batteries to store it all. Um, the the sort of the elephant in the room here is is what kind of power sources are we talking about for doing the resource extraction at the beginning? I mean, you know, you're going to be melting large amounts of regolith. We're talking about temperatures of 2,000 C, and that's going to take lots of power. And I don't think you've said much about where that's going to come from. Okay, so let me let me amplify that. Um, the, um, uh, the the deposition rover that we've discussed uh, will be loaded with the raw materials, one load of silicon and aluminum to be able to do silicon solar cells as the first step. So as we land within one solar within one lunar day, we'll generate about 40 kilowatt capacity of solar cells. That's more than adequate to fire up the um, uh, the, the regular processor. Uh, we'll need an extension cord to do that. I'm, I say that facetiously, but the answer is we will make the uh, power requirements that we need in less than one lunar day for the extractor, for the processor, and then continue working with that processor uh, downstream with that power availability. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That basically you're you're, you're actually starting out um, with power production and storage, and then that will eventually lead in. To uh, to the uh, to the resource extraction is is that is that what you're saying? That's correct. That's yeah, correct. that's okay. That's uh, that's very nice. Um, okay, thank you. Um, other other and questions. Also, well, actually, to add to that, our NIAC study, if we get funded to do that, will look at that early phase because we could also land a couple of of MMRTGs or other such things if we really were a little short of power. But the key point is, we land ready to build the power. Uh, and so that's the thing that's first done. And then with that, then, uh, we can start, uh, doing the, the full-up, uh, activity. So we do understand that, yes, we're power constrained and we need that power. And so we go there ready to build that at the level we need to perform the manufacturing. Well, so, so in terms of test missions, missions where you do proof of concept, that's one of the most important concepts you have to prove. Is, is that, right. is that correct? Yeah, okay. 
Um, so I, my question is related to I, I think power might not be too hard, and you can you can melt stuff in your microwave uh, to those uh, temperatures. Um, electricity is really good at getting high temperatures if you need it. So, I mean, to me, um, something like um, purity of the material is a big question. I know we're like pulling like um, electrodes from a melt. So hypothetically, you could get high purity and quality, but it seems to me that this is like a really hard question, actually. Like if you you look at a table of elements and, oh, I have these elements here, I can turn it into that. But if you actually go in your backyard, pull some dirt out and try to make that out of, into metal, even with electrolysis, like it's actually really hard to, to get anything structural out of that. Have you managed to do that? Has your company actually managed to make anything structural out of, like, lunar stimulant? Anything so metal? Let me, let me, sure, let, let me clarify. This is Alex. Um, you know, we we have not uh, gotten there yet. However, our spin-off, or the spin-off company, Boston Metal, that Don Sadaway spun off, in fact, is fabricating iron and steel at this point in time. Uh, they are making uh, hundreds of pounds tons of iron, uh, high-quality iron, 99%, 99.5% iron. Uh, and they're and using then, uh, the iron ore, right? Uh, they're using they're iron, using iron ore, ore, that's for correct. That. Okay. That's correct. And uh, for the process with regolith, which have, has multiple multiple oxides in it, we understand the concept. It turns out that the way you do electrolysis is that the iron will come out first, then comes the sodium, then comes the silicon, and uh, and you then we have a both an extractor and for refining the refining actually is important principally for the silicon because we have to have semiconductor grade to do solar cells uh, and moderately important for aluminum just to have enough conductivity to make it to make it worthwhile as a good conductor um, for 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 the silicon specifically we'll have a refiner cell to follow on the extractor cell so we'll do a double step refining there to get down to the 99 or the 49 495 numbers we need for a silicon for that application. Uh, for the other materials and the metals, the iron purity and quality will that be critical for structural applications and or for conduit, etc. Um, uh, the, 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 the calcium, uh, the, um, the sodium, they come off as vapors, so they are vapor purified for all intents and purposes. So we believe we have a relatively solid process to get a, an, a good enough quality, as I said, metallurgical quality for the metals. Uh, it's the silicon where we have to do the extra refining, uh, and so we have uh, believe that we can meet that challenge quite directly. Alex, this is uh, Alex. This is Ellie. Real quick, uh, two weeks ago we got the iron samples back, and they were over 99% uh, pure from the uh, MRE stuff in Boston. I have a question on uh, the surface roughness on the moon that you need for some of the uh, antenna structures. Um, when you, you have a kind of a plow at the front, like a snow plow, um, and then you're going to melt um, after that, have, have you tried this on, you know, sand or, you know, some things that would approximate the lunar surface just to, to see how well it works? A good point. We're actually doing that right now. Um, but it turns out that for the microwave antenna, it's a it's a 10 meter wave it's a 10 meter antenna. The wavelength is about 10 meters, and so as a result, any undulation that's you know half of that or a fraction of that is irrelevant in terms of the antenna. It can be squiggly; it doesn't have to be straight. 
Uh, it, you know, it can it, it can go through divots and, and over little hills. It, does, it should not be a problem for it. Um, so as long as there is connectivity in the aluminum strip line, uh, it should act as an antenna with no problems as, as long as the, the morphology is less than of the order, you know, of a fraction of a of a of a ten of ten meters, a few a few you know five meters or so smaller than that, we should have no problem at all there. Right. Now, yeah. The analysis the analysis that we've done shows that both placement of the antenna in in three dimensions to two or three meters is more than sufficient to maintain uh, an adequate scientific signal. So, and that is uh, adjacent. So over as a 20 kilometer radius, it can be much larger than that because we can we can calibrate uh, the antenna shape once uh, the antennas are built. But antenna to antenna, we're talking about two to three meter variations are well within the tolerances. Yeah, I guess I was looking at something in the future where one might want to look at optical structures and just curious if you'd probably them. Right, yeah. I mean, that, that obviously is a much harder problem. That's part of the reason, well, the two reasons we're going with low frequency is you can't do that from the Earth. Um, uh, and if you want to study the complex dark ages, uh, the Earth just generates far too much noise. And so the, the far side of the moon is the only place you can do it. And then the tolerances are all much more relaxed. And so once we actually have something up there and we're building it, then we'll work to see what we can can do to go to higher frequencies or other things to generate uh, this activity. So this is this is the first step of which we hope will be a much more robust program for the next uh, 50 to 100 years. And, and a corollary to what Ron is saying is that you know we also considered doing this kind of adaptation inside of a crater uh, to give us some some focusing shape to begin with. Um, that's also possible. Optically, that becomes more difficult because you have to have really smooth uh, and no undulation environment. But nonetheless, in a microwave range, that's a possibility. Uh, let me interject for a second because there was a question before about bringing the uh, the antenna to, to the moon versus making them there. I went back to my calculations. Just the amount of aluminum you would need for 100,000 antennas is 30 tons, and that's no support structure, nothing to wind them on. Uh, nothing to, as a background. That's just the aluminum itself. You need to have, if nothing else, Kapton or Mylon that you deposited, Mylar that you deposited on. So you should probably at least double or triple that amount. We're talking about, uh, you know, many tens of tons of, of just the raw materials that take to the moon to make the, to uh, deploy them instead of making them there. And to make them there, we're talking about, let's say, a couple of rovers and a couple of processors. That's no more than, uh, um, um, uh, you know, Less than one ton of of of, of uh, landed material. Yeah, thank you. That, that that was actually my question about about the the uh, the mass that needed to be to be sent. I guess I find that a little surprising because in Jack Burns's design for a deployable uh, a deployable array on the moon, uh, he was basically just going to be unrolling. Um, mylar, mylar foil, mylar sheets with, with, uh, foil on it. So very thin, uh, um, uh, electrical surface. You basically just need a conducting surface and the thickness is sort of irrelevant. So I'm, I'm a little surprised it takes that much aluminum to, to cover the whole area, but I'll, you know, I'll, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll remember, remember we're a thousand times more sensitive than he is. So this is a much bigger scale. And so, uh, for small systems like Jack is proposing, yes, uh, you can do that. But at 100,000 dipoles, 
uh, it becomes uh, prohibitively expensive. Oh, okay, but yeah. I guess a hundred thousand dipoles dipoles with uh, with aluminized mylar foil doesn't seem to me to be a lot of weight. But uh, you know, I just have to go numbers. Dan, let me add that I used Farside. I used Jack's numbers uh, for his for his uh, antenna to give you the number that I just oh. gave you. Oh, okay. Well, that then 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 all that that's fine. I mean, uh, if what what you're saying. I mean, the the array is absolutely enormous, but still, you know, a couple of hundred square feet of uh, of, of 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 aluminized mylar is really light stuff, but uh, but a couple of square miles of it, um, you know, that, that might be that might be quite a bit more. So, okay. And, and the number I gave you was just the aluminum content in on that aluminum mylar system. Right. Okay? Yeah. Just the amount of aluminum you need to do that. It's got to be thick enough for extinction distance. So I didn't worry about the mylar weight or any, any of the, or the rolls or anything else. This is just aluminum only. It's 30 tons. Right. Hey, Alex, and also, what we looked at, what we looked at, is landing the uh, I3 factory. Is that that mass? Uh, we can actually fit four of them into uh, something like the Blue Moon uh, lander, and so that now gives us um, uh, the ability to generate all this stuff uh, with a fairly small mass to surface. And as you know, the cost is uh, kilograms to the surface of the moon is expensive, and so. This is actually the most efficient way because we land a factory and then build stuff there. Alex and Ron, this is Dallas Beanhoff. How are you? Dallas. Hi. What's the field? Of, what's the field of view of your antenna? Is it 180 degrees or is it less? It's probably going to be a little less. Uh, that's part of the study that we will do um, uh, if we ever get funded to, to look at the analysis. Um, there are uh, certainly uh, dealing with an undulating terrain and stuff uh, are going to be factors, but you know it, it should be substantial. Uh, we don't know the exact details yet. That'll be something that will come out of the study. Okay, thanks. Other questions? Hi. I had a I had a quick question regarding the uh, communications. Um, are you playing this? Honestly, these rovers are communicating with each other and, you know, knowing where to go. Are you having some Earth-based, uh, Earth-to-moon communication, or, like, how how are you dealing with that aspect? Yeah, th these uh, rovers – oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, This is rovers communicating with each other, and we and we also will will probably have a small taxi to run from the uh, processor to refill the rover instead of the rover coming all the way back. So they're all interacting. Uh, on the surface of the moon, and they're all, in a sense, autonomous, um, no significant control in terms of either from Earth or from the lunar base. Okay, great. Thank you. Hi, this is Steve Brody, uh, NASA retiree and uh, ISU faculty. Um, <clears throat> I see um, on the lunar, uh, talk about lunar structural applications, uh, it strikes me one thing that isn't mentioned, I wonder if you looked at it, you know, especially if we've got humans involved uh, on the moon at some point, is um, is glass for optical transmissivity, either as a structural application or functionally or otherwise. We've got the silicon, uh, silicon oxides and all that. Have you looked at um, producing any, any glass? 
we, we have not. I mean, the, the glass, we have made lunar glass, but only for a substrate. It has high resistivity. It's not transmitting. It's a mixture of silicon, aluminum oxides, and iron oxides. Um, so it, it's not, not transparent per se, unless it's very, very, very thin. Uh, but uh, so we have not, you'd have to have, you have to separate the silicon oxide out of the rest of the, uh, the oxides, principally to get a good transmission, a uh, transmitted glass. That theoretically could be done. We have not looked at that at all. Once they do that, we have the energy to be able to, to liquefy it and then, um, and then do some plate glass scenarios. But nonetheless, we have to have the silicon oxide, silicon dioxide, sorry, extracted or, or refined from the, from the rest of the regolith. Okay, thanks. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Space Economy, to contact us or send us an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Next week, our first interview from 2021.